0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at Fox, and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is the Fox News Rundown Extra. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. This past week, we spoke with Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio about China. He wrote a new book called Decades of Decadence, How Our Spoiled Elites Blew America's Inheritance of Liberty, Security, and Prosperity. He gave us a bit of a modern history lesson about when our trade and our economy shifted. He says we naively thought helping China into the World Trade Organization over 20 years ago would empower the U.S. and China. It only empowered one of those countries, he says, and it wasn't us. But we also discussed how the business community, our American CEOs, may not be on the same page as lawmakers when it comes to China and how he'd address that divide. We spoke to the senator after The Wall Street Journal reported that China has set up a spying operation in Cuba. And as he's the ranking member on the Senate Intelligence Committee, we got his take on that as well. We also talked about the growing field of Republican presidential candidates before former President Trump was indicted. We often have to cut interviews down for time during the week, but thought you'd like to hear this full interview. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the Weekday Rundown podcast if you haven't already. Now, here's Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio on the Fox News Rundown Extra. We know it, but give us your name and your title. We'll get an audio level off that.
1: Yep. Marco Rubio, U.S. Senator from the state of Florida.
0: All right, very good. So uh, as I'm reading your book, I get a report from Wall Street Journal that Cuba is going to let China spy on the U.S. from their monitoring, I guess, what they can get of our communications, our naval traffic. We we all know you're on intel. What do we, I guess, do with this information now, knowing it's it's relatively new to us?
1: Well, I think first we have to understand that yeah, This it's not new in the sense that both the Chinese and the Russians have had an, an intelligence presence in Cuba for a while expanding on it is not surprising I don't want to get into too much level of detail obviously that was I mean, you know something that was given to the press but I'm glad it's in the public reporting because Cuba is a real national security threat for America I mean, it's not just some third-world economy run by a bunch of old, 90 year old communists it is a nation that is allies to all of our enemies and not a friend of this country or our way of life or our system they have weaponized migration against us and that they are allies with Iran their allies with North Korea, their allies with the Russians, and their allies with the Chinese. And, the, and they're in desperate need of money. And if the Chinese come in and say, we want to do whatever in Cuba, the Cubans will probably let them do it. And that would, I think that would include military basing right off of our coast. So I hope this is a wake-up call that Cuba is, you know, once again, a significant national security threat to the United States as a base of operations for our adversaries.
0: Do we respond in any way or does that or does that really remain to be seen?
1: Well I think it begins with the Cuban regime itself. I think it's incumbent on this administration to send a very firm message that these will be the consequences if you do this and uh, there are a range of options available to them if they want to explore them. I wouldn't talk about those publicly right now but but nonetheless I mean there are things you can do to impose a price. At the end of the day the Cuban regime is sitting there saying we're gonna do as much as we think we can get away with without hurting ourselves but we have real significant leverage over Cuba and over that regime, and we should oppose that. That hasn't been the attitude of this administration up to now. Right. I mean, they, they, What they have really tried to do is appease them so as to get their cooperation on things like migration. The, 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 administration, the Biden administration is not interested in any political change inside of Cuba. They want stability. The last thing they want to deal with is a change of government and a change of approach over there and a migratory crisis from Cuba. But uh, that's what's allowed them to think that they can allow these sort of activities to happen. But they don't think we'll do anything about it.
0: Normally, Senator, when we have somebody on to talk about their book, we talk about, you know, news of day. Um, yeah. and, and then we talk about the book. Uh, in reading your book, um, your, your book is news of day. Uh, it's called Decades of Decadence, How Our Spoiled Elites Blue, America's Inheritance of Liberty, Security and Prosperity. Highly relevant to a number of conversations we're having right now um, in the country and just to brief my my listeners uh, you know 20 you write um roughly 20 25 years ago that and i'm summarizing that we naively thought we'd be exporting our way of life and help countries like china be more open be more like us and you write that that has clearly backfired um turns out we exported no such thing we exported really just our jobs and to all of us who think that nafta was the was the catalyst or was a huge part in in that process you actually say that it was 2001 the wto that we helped china get into the wto i wonder can you give us a brief history lesson here and can yeah. you tell us a little bit about the chairs your mother made
1: well I think the aluminum chairs yeah I mean, she worked at a factory in Hialeah, Florida. There are no factories really left there at this point because like other jobs uh, are long gone. But let me go back and just say real quick about that period of time. And yeah, that's the, so I am starting basically college at the end of the cold war. So I'm raised in the cold war and then sort of started college and at at that, and and, so born and basically politically raised in an era in which we were told the following, and that is history is over. Everyone's gonna be a democracy now. Everyone's gonna have free enterprise. And nationhood is not going to matter that much anymore, countries not going to matter that much anymore, because we're all going to be consumers and investors in this global economy. And in Mm -hmm. fact, countries may never go to war again, because they're going to have business deals together. And that is a theory that was not built on 5,500 years of what we know about human nature and human history. And it's a memo that China didn't get and Russia didn't get and Iran didn't get, nationhood does matter. But that was a bipartisan consensus, and so we made economic decisions, and the economic decisions were things like, it's okay if your job is gone and that factory leaves our country. It's going to be made in a cheaper place, and a better-paying job will come back and replace the one that was lost. Well, that didn't happen, and so suddenly, you didn't just lose jobs. It wasn't just economics. You destroyed communities. You destroyed family. You undermined the very fiber of a country, which is community and family, because you can't have those two things if you don't have stable, long-term employment for people. At the same time, you had this other decadent movement growing, which is all of these things we know to be true, like there is such a thing as biological sex, Uh, yet we've made progress in racial equality and continue to make progress. All of these things were being challenged initially in academia, but then it spread as people graduated and went into the corporate boardroom and took over media companies and continued to grow in Hollywood. And so you had this what now is a cultural hysteria disguised and framed as social justice and equity. But in reality, it is asking us to adopt fantasy as truth, the fantasy that gender isn't real, the fantasy that, um, you know, uh, family doesn't matter as much anymore, the fantasy that, that, that um, you know, the country is uh, an inherently racist one that is as worse than it was in the 1960s. If you listen to some people talk, mm-hmm. all these are fantasies. And these two are now intersecting. What's happened now is corporate America populated by people raised and educated in that system and thinking is basically going along with it because it's, what do they care? Um, At the end of the day, their job is to make money and they don't care what it means for America as long as the place doesn't matter, country doesn't matter anymore. And so these two things are now intersecting and pose a real crisis at the worst possible time because China is under no such illusions. They pose the single greatest near peer adversary this nation's ever faced, far more capable than the Soviet union ever was. And, um, and the 21st century is going to be the Chinese century at our expense. If we don't reverse course pretty quickly here, we've wasted a lot of time already.
2: Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy.
1: And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America.
2: Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.
0: Yeah. Senator 20 to 25 years, is not much time in the span of history, right? This is when all of this happened—the um, the, the shift in in our economy right. that you're that you're writing about—and that's not too much time. It it does make you wonder if if it can be sort of reversed or shifted or changed. What do you say to people like Elon Musk and J.P. Morgan Chase's CEO Jamie Dimon and so many others who are in China? They, you know, we. The American system has, has, is a market free, you know, free market system, um, and they're they're not interested in, in leaving China and necessarily making things back back here the way we've been talking about for the past few years.
1: Well, their job is to make money, money for their company and money. And, and, and I'm a capitalist. I understand that's fine. That's their job, but that's not my job. My job in mm-hmm. public policy is to act in the best interest of America. And so what we need to do is make sure that our laws and our policies are laws and policies that support capitalism and support their ability to make money, but as long as it is in the interest of the United States of America. We've got to put the interest of our country above all that. They're going to put the interest of their company, their bottom line, and so forth. I mean, there are patriotic people in the CEO world and, and in the corporate world, and they may make a different decision. But at the end of the day, that we, that's what we have to Just because some who's been very successful economically thinks we need to do things a certain way doesn't mean that's the way we should do it as a nation it may be in the best interest of their company but when the best interest of their company and the best interest of our country are in conflict as a policymaker those of us in policymaking we need to be on the side of the best interest of our country if we don't put america's interests first nobody else is going to put our interests first the chinese aren't no other country every other country in the world sort of operates under that Except for us over the last 25 years living this fantasy that if it was good for the world and good for a corporation with a mailing address in America It was automatically good for America. Mm-hmm. That's just not true anymore And it's being proven true and that that that's being proven every single day
0: You say in your book in the headline that the elites did this to us um, We became so hyper focused on being consumers uh, You know, we we lost as you said our community our family our structure I wonder. You know, we do live in a democratic republic. We elected these people. Is it we, the people, the voters, who got complacent? Is this our a, fault for electing? Yeah. You know, look, that, that that's an elites.
1: interesting point. No, that's an interesting point that someone raised with me yesterday in reviewing my book, and that I didn't focus as much on individual agency. And I think that's true. I think there's a part of it that's there. I think part of it, to be fair, is that everyday people are out there raising their kids and and running their small business and moving yeah. up through life and. They, you know, they don't get paid to sit around all day and ponder the great issues of the day because they've got they've got to be somewhere tomorrow at eight thirty in the morning or they don't get paid. So I do think that's part of it. I think part of it is that it was a bipartisan consensus. I mean, across the political spectrum, everybody was talking this way for the last twenty years. I mean, this was sort of the consensus, and so that there wasn't really an alternative provided. And and you know, I was raised in that consensus, so I know well you know some of the attributes that that brought with it. And then, um, you know what I would add to that as well in all of this, that you talk about the elites. Look, we, I think we have more knowledge than we've ever had in, in terms of information. You know, highest sure. educated, uh, the young Americans today and people populating our, the highest ranks of every industry in America are the most educated group of Americans that have ever existed. Multiple degrees, advanced degrees, you name it. But knowledge is one thing. Wisdom is something different. And wisdom mm-hmm. is when you infuse knowledge with common sense. So we have a lot of people at elite levels that have a lot of knowledge and a lot of education, but have divorced it from common sense. And thing, and, and so when you get to the point, when you ask these people, well, let me ask you a question. I, I believe in the market, but if the market outcome is the most efficient outcome, but it happens to be bad for America, should we be in favor of the American outcome or the pro-market outcome? And they'll tell you, well, you know, they'll either dispute the point or they'll just say, well, be on favor of the market outcome and it'll ultimately be good for America. I think that, by, right there tells you that they are completely divorced from common sense, not to mention some of the social cultural issues that we see that ask us to completely abandon common sense and to pretend, for example, that that guy who won first place in some swimming meet uh, is actually a woman. And when everyone can tell you that it's not. And it, but, but if you say it, then you get there's a real price to pay, um, you know, in, in terms of uh, you know, being canceled or called out or being called a hater or what have you. So I think that's one of the challenges we, we saw it during COVID. Um, there was no sense of cost benefit analysis that comes with common sense. You know, it was we got to shut everything down and keep kids out of school, even though the risk of dying in a car accident was far higher than the risk of a child dying because of COVID. We, we did this one size fits all policy for everybody and we're paying a, a huge price for it now.
0: Just two more related questions before I let you go. You did not vote for the Chips and Science Act or the infrastructure bill. These two had some bipartisan support. After all we've talked about, I imagine these are things in theory you do support. Infrastructure investments, making semiconductors here at home. So how should we have done that if those bills were not the
1: right way? Because look at Chips bill as an example. I was an early supporter of the concept. Then they write the bill. And then you read the bill, what he basically conclude is, we're going to put billions of dollars into the hands of businesses, we're going to have to do that in order to build the chips. But those businesses can keep building chips in China, what they call legacy chips. And, and we're also not going to put in additional scrutiny and security. We already have billions of dollars of intellectual property and secrets stolen by the Chinese every year. Now they're going to give them billions more to steal. Um, and so when I tried to put additional security measures to protect whatever it is we're making and building with this taxpayer money, they, um, they, they opposed it, they didn't want those restrictions. And they also didn't want the restrictions on being able to continue to do business in China. So why would we be giving billions of dollars to companies who are gonna to continue to do work and help China build up their native capacity to compete against us, not to mention steal our secrets. And so, and, and then to top it all off, we now find out that the people administering this bill are going to these companies saying oh and by the way in addition to making chips you got to have a certain child care policy a certain family leave policy certain mm-hmm. equity numbers that you have to meet they're injecting all of this social cultural uh, lunacy and hysteria into decision making that that also applies to the fake uh inflation reduction act and and we see it applying to the infrastructure bill where we're not just building highways we're, we're, we're going after racist highways uh which is a, a literally a verbatim description of what Pete Buttigieg is, has talked about. So, um, you know, one thing is what the headline reads and the other thing is what it actually does. And I think voting for bad public policy will actually set us back, no matter what you call it.
0: Finally, some of your Republican colleagues do not think former President Trump should be the nominee, right? Um, we heard from Governor Sununu on that. but But he is polling far ahead of everyone else. And one could argue, and I think you have, that one of the biggest reasons Trump won in 2016 is that he gets everything you've been talking about in this interview. China, jobs moving overseas, the, the so-called elites, right? So given the, the picture now in June, what does the GOP, what should the GOP do moving forward here in terms of 2024?
1: Well, look. there is no smoke-filled room that's going to decide this. The people that are going to decide this are going to be voting in caucuses in Iowa and in primaries in New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada and the other states. That's what's going to decide it. And these candidates are going to have to take the stage and debate and perform. And, and that's what's going to happen here. Look, I, I think, in hindsight, if you look at it, the Trump candidacy of 2016 was pretty transformational. I mean, he challenged all of the orthodoxy in the Republican Party and I think actually helped begin this very important realignment in American public policy. And if there's any regret is that, um, you know, when he takes over in the White House, his instincts were right. But he turned around and found that there just aren't enough people yet in think tanks and ready to populate the government that actually share these views and can actually give framework to the things he was talking about. So, you know, unlike Reagan, who gets elected in 1980, but the movement had been building since Goldwater, Trump kind of wins before the movement gets there. And so as much as anything else, I think his candidacy is about now, you know, in a different environment, getting back and finishing the job in that regard. But we're, you know, we're a party that has a lot of really talented people. I mean, you ask yourself today, if Joe Biden announced he wasn't running, their front runner would be Kamala Harris. She ran for president, didn't even make it to, she didn't even make it to Iowa. She dropped out in her home state before even having votes in her own home state. They have nobody. That's why you have a Robert F. Kennedy Jr. who's actually beginning to, you know, poll in numbers that register because... Um, the Democratic bench is very weak because it's not a meritocracy over there. And, and so um, we, on the other hand, have, a, you know, more than a dozen highly qualified people running and not running in many cases uh, who could who would be better than anybody. The Democrats could put up. So, you know, th- I don't agonize over that because the voters will decide it and the candidates will perform. I certainly think President Trump is a front runner because he has a lot of the benefits that a, an incumbent Republican president running for reelection would have.